Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. I hope you're doing well today. This is for week 26, the week of June 26th through July 2nd. We're getting ready for July the 4th. Um, now, if I'm not incorrect, I think actually July the 2nd was actually the day that um, either the declaration was read or or something like that, because I think John Adams had said uh, July the 2nd will be a uh, famous day in the history or whatever, but actually... He was wrong. It was July the 4th. I don't know if there were some complications with signing or whatever, but um, despite all of that, you may have not been interested in that little tidbit of history there, but um, I hope you're doing well and you're still reading through the New Testament. We are here this week in Romans, and we are walking through Romans. We're in Romans 9 through 13. We have been walking through Romans, and we've seen the first eight chapters. Uh, Paul here, the Apostle Paul, in this very important letter, uh, probably the most important letter ever written, has written to us in the first eight chapters and talked to us about the importance and the greatness and the wonder and the, 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 the great assurance and security we have in the salvation that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. God has given us his righteousness in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed and we see that in the first, you know, last half of, of uh, chapter one through the first half of chapter three, Paul there is telling us our need for justification. We all stand before the judgment seat of God. None of us come with anything that we can say matches his standard, his law. We have all done things we should not have done, and we haven't done the things that we should have done, and our hearts are desperately wicked and sinful and sick. And so therefore, none is righteous, no, not one. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. So in light of the fact that we can't justify ourselves by our own actions or anything that we actively do, Paul then in the latter part of chapter 3 shows us a righteousness that is not something we do, but that is given to us. Not a righteousness that we work, but a righteousness that we receive. So it's the righteousness that comes to us in the redemption that is found in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, as Paul describes him, uh, the seed of David at the very beginning of his gospel uh, or in his letter to the uh, Romans in chapter 1. Uh, so he was, yeah, he says he was concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power. So this Savior has given us a standing. So we receive Jesus Christ. When we receive Jesus Christ, we are accepted in Christ's, in God's sight because his righteousness covers our unrighteousness. And this means we are secure because we stand upon his salvation and we stand upon what he has done, not what we have done and have not have done. And then Paul is showing us all of the implications of this one doctrine of justification because we are justified, we simply receive it by faith, just like Father Abraham did. Therefore, this is this this salvation involves not simply Jews, but Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles are both guilty in the first part of Romans, and Jews and Gentiles now both share the one salvation that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are fulfilling the promises made to Abraham, where Abraham was promised that he would be the father of many nations. He would be the father of a multitude. And so those Jews and Gentiles who now receive the gift that God has given to the world, Jesus Christ, 
Everyone who receives him, they are the sons and the daughters of Abraham and fulfill the promises given to Abraham. God is fulfilling them in Christ for the whole world. Now then he continues in Romans chapter five and shows that we have joy and peace. We stand in this grace that God's love has been lavished upon us. And he shows how much greater grace has triumphed over the fall of mankind. And he shows that Jesus is like a second Adam where the first Adam brought condemnation through. So Jesus Christ has brought about justification and salvation and redemption and acceptance and peace. And because we have been justified with Christ and we're now united to him, this also means that we have died with regards to sin. Sin no longer holds us in slavery. Sin no longer rules over us as a king or a taskmaster, but we have been set free in Christ. We are free from the law of sin and death. Now, Paul points out that this this doesn't mean, of course, that we don't have remaining sin in us. We still struggle with sin. And in Romans chapter 7, he highlights to us that this struggle still continues. And we do the things that we don't want to do. And we don't do the things we know we should do and we want to do. And so at the end, Paul says, Who will deliver us from this body of death? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So once again, notice again, every single time Paul's trying to train us and teach us the way the gospel works is always to go back to Jesus Christ and to receive, to receive our identity, to receive who we are. You and I are so quick and ready to get the list and to make checklists and start to do things. Paul is telling us what is a reality for us in Christ, not what is a potentiality, not what might happen, but what is true for us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of everything that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we have no condemnation, not simply that we've removed most of the condemnation or we shouldn't, you know, whatever, whatever. Paul says, as a matter of fact, there is no, zero, zip, zilch, condemnation. I said the word wrong, didn't I? I said condemnation, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit testifies to us that we are the sons and the daughters of the living God. And we're waiting with the whole of creation for this new, wonderful salvation to be revealed at the last days. And we know that uh, that we are safe and secure in the arms of God because he has foreknown, that is, he has loved us before the foundation of the world. He has predestined us. He has called us. He has justified us. He will glorify us. And so we know that nothing now can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No one can bring any charge against God's elect, Paul says. And no matter what the world throws at us, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He quotes a psalm there, doesn't he? Um, Paul does and says, look, we're suffering. It looks like we're suffering. We don't look like we're, you know, from the world's eyes, perhaps we're just sheep to be slaughtered. But look at this. Nothing Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us. Nothing can come between us and the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our sins had made a separation between us and God, but now nothing can. Nothing, complete, utter, complete, finished salvation found in Jesus Christ. Well, he finishes that and this wonderful truth in Romans 8 and then comes down to 
uh, kind of some reality now. And if you're a Gentile, right, you're listening, or if you're a Jew even, you're sitting here and you're listening to Paul's letter and you're saying, okay, that is true. I, I, what you're saying is, sounds great, but why didn't all the Jews believe it if this is so true? Why is it that the people that this message came to first, remember the, the gospel comes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and the people that Paul is here going to answer, uh, kind of, uh, he knows what people probably are going to be thinking now. And the thing that they might be thinking is, okay, if this salvation is so great, nothing can separate us from the word from God. And you're telling us that God's purpose cannot fail, that God's purpose and plan of salvation will not fail. It is infallible. Then why didn't the Jews believe? Why didn't the people of the Old Testament believe? Why, why didn't the people that were, you know, the ethnic Israel, why didn't the nation of Israel believe? They crucified Jesus. They didn't believe in him whenever he rose from the dead. There were some that did. You know, we praise God. The, the apostles were Jews. Paul himself is a Jew. Uh, many of the early followers of Jesus were Jews. But most of the Jewish nation, including their religious leaders, they did not follow Jesus. They did not receive him as the righteousness of God. So Paul now is going to address this concern. And this is a really valid concern. Paul opens up in Romans chapter 9, says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Real quick, just a little thing. You notice, by the way, how Paul refers to the Christ as God over all, blessed forever. That's just highlight another verse, right? Just to remind yourself that this Christ who descended in the flesh is also has a divine nature as well. He is the Son of God. But what Paul here is doing is saying, listen, there are so many external benefits these Jews had, right? They had the covenants, they have all the history, they have the pedigree, they have the heritage, they had the word of God, as Paul's already talked about in the first few chapters of the word of Romans. He says, um, talks about, you know, it's not simply knowing the law, it's doing what the law requires. And, and the Jews, right, in the Old Testament, they knew the law. God had given them the Ten Commandments, he'd given them precepts and principles and plain instruction through Moses and the prophets and the and, and the kings and everybody. So all of those wonderful, and they were real blessings. Paul says there was great benefit to being a Jew um, because to them, the oracles of God were entrusted for that time. They were given the word of God in the gospel as it was known back then. And so the question is, why didn't they believe? Paul himself says, I have anguish in my heart. I am so sad. I, I, it breaks my heart that they don't believe this gospel. And so now we're going to go into some very important chapters here in Romans, because the first eight chapters are really highlighting the justification that we have in Christ, the salvation that's found there. Romans 9 through 11 are really going to talk about this whole question. Why didn't the Jews believe? And why are so many Gentiles believing? And does this mean God's word has failed? What is God, and really in the sense is, what is God doing here? If this salvation is so great, but why is this happening? How do we understand this? What is God doing here in Romans 9 through 11? 
That's really the key questions there, isn't it? And then uh, today, for this week, 12 and 13, they begin the practical part of the book of Romans, where Paul is going to say, in light of all that God has done in 1 through 11, really, uh, in light of all that God has done, now, here's how you should live. And that's very important, by the way. Notice the order. There's a logical, uh, an important order there. Sometimes we place that order and we flip it. We say, I'm going to do all this stuff so that God will do his part. Paul says, no, 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 no. Because of what God has done, that comes first. Because of everything that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, this is how you now live a life of gratitude for grace received. Now, present your bodies as sacrifices to the Lord. That is the order. God first, then us. Sometimes we flip that because we think, uh, we're just, we just naturally think that way, I think. Quite honestly, you and I, we, we all think that way naturally. So what Paul is teaching us there is very important as well in the big overall view of Romans. So let's start going into Romans 9. And I want to use, today, I'm going to only use one book. It is this very helpful uh, little devotional. It's called the Daily Devotional Through the New Testament. You might want one. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe I could figure out how to get some here at the church. But there's a Daily Devotional Through the New Testament, 365 daily readings. Uh, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great little uh, thing. It's I got this at the uh, book thing from uh, Parkside Church. Um, so it's really helpful. So here, we'll kind of walk through some of what it says here. This commentary is really helpful, especially on a passage like Romans 9, which um, can be difficult to understand. I mean, and we're trying to put things together, um, but let's try to grasp what Paul is saying to us here. And uh, I'm going to read a lot about Romans 9 because that really helps set the stage for what's going to go. I think uh, Romans 9 is such a key chapter that really, if you get that, I think a lot of 10 and 11 will 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 kind of you know be be easier probably to understand so this is uh this is from that book and we're going to read through some of this This is really going to give commentary on that whole chapter nine Uh, this this uh, devotional says this despite all the gifts and promises to israel in former times the majority of ethnic jews in paul's day did not acknowledge jesus as god's promised savior and king Paul feels agony in his heart when he thinks about the rejection of jesus by his kinsmen and wishes he could do something about it. Those who know the good news about Jesus are concerned about helping others to know it also. They have a painful sense of responsibility for the souls of those who don't believe. And that is a wonderful thing, too, to remind us, isn't it? Paul is grieved. Notice that. He wishes, he says, I wish so much that they would believe the gospel. I wish they didn't continue in their unbelief. And we as well should have this, as they, this devotional says, a painful sense of responsibility for the souls of those who don't believe. We should be praying for those who don't believe. Paul was so concerned when he saw the Jews rejecting this truth. And are you and I so feeling in agony? Are we feel agony in heart and sorrow because of the fact of people's unbelief? Because if they continue in that unbelief, they will perish everlastingly. And Paul is very concerned about that. That is the background here. Paul is dealing with his own people, right? He, he's dealing with those who come from his heritage, his background. And he finds himself now a part of a new family in Christ. But he looks at, the, at from, from the fleshly side, from this human side, he looks at him and he says, I wish so much that the Jews would believe this message. But now he begins 
uh, here, and now in verse, chapter, verse 6, and it opens up here, it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So let's read a little bit more from this devotional to kind of help us grasp some of these things from these verses around in here. He says this, Paul has guaranteed us that nothing can separate us from God's love, and he did that in Romans 8.39. However, he knows that some people may have an objection to this promise. How can we trust that we will never be separated from God's love if God didn't keep his word to Israel? Now, that's a really good question, isn't it? How can we trust that we, Jews or Gentiles who believed in Jesus, how can we believe that we will never be separated from God's love if God, if we think that God didn't keep his word to Israel? God didn't keep his salvation to Israel. Is that, is that what happened? And if we're interpreting it that way, then we might be tempted to think, well, he won't be faithful to us either. That's a, that's a good question, isn't it? After all, if Jesus came to fulfill God's promises to his people, but most Israelites rejected Jesus, then it seems like God's promises haven't come true. Paul must answer this very important question. Has God's word to Israel failed? That's a, that's a, great, that's a great question, isn't it? Has God's word failed? Has it not attained its object? Did God send a gospel message to Israel? and? it didn't do what God wanted it to do, right? That's a great question. Was God, did God fail in his message to Israel? Well, the devotional continues. The answer is a clear no. We see that in verse 6. And chapters 9 through 11 provide Paul's detailed response to this question. So keep that in mind as you read Romans 9 through 11. Has God's word to Israel failed? That's the background question. That, that, we, that we need to have in our minds, I think, as we read in the coming days through Romans 9 through 11. That's very helpful. He begins by explaining that God's promises to Israel were never guaranteed to anyone on the basis of ethnicity. In other words, uh, of your race or your, um, of your, of the, of the, your biological descendancy from, from your parents or being a part of the Jewish nation. Uh, salvation was never guaranteed and, and the promises were never guaranteed to anybody on the basis of ethnicity, this is saying, or good deeds in verse 11, right? So because of your heritage, your ethnicity, or your good deeds, salvation was never promised on that basis to anybody, right? The devotional continues, for example, Jacob and Esau were twins, but God made a promise to bless Jacob before he had done anything good or bad. Esau had the same Jewish heritage as Jacob, and he wasn't as deceptive as Jacob, but these things did not guarantee God's favor. Paul's point would have shocked his fellow Jews, but it is clear from their own history. Inclusion in the true, notice the key word true, true people of God, has never been determined by ethnicity or by good works, but only by God's free choice to give his mercy to whomever he pleases. God has not been unfaithful to his word, however, because God has never promised that an ethnic Jew, that, or that being an ethnic Jew guarantees eternal salvation. We bow before him in worship and wonder, knowing that our salvation is only because of grace. 
Now that is is very important, isn't it? A key, key reminder because there were people. Remember um, when John the Baptist was baptizing people, and there were people like people coming to get baptized, and John the Baptist says, "Don't say that you're children of Abraham." Uh, basically, basically the point is, um, they were coming and maybe trusting the fact that they were biologically descended from Abraham, and they were trusting in that heritage, in their background, in their ancestry for salvation and thinking that it made them superior. And John the Baptist tells them, I tell you right now, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham if he wanted to. That has never been the basis for salvation. We see that, right? Because Jacob and Esau, you think about it, they had the same biological genes. If you want to really get scientific, they had the same DNA really in them, right? They had the same mother, the same father. So, they had the same thing, and they also, they, they hadn't done anything good or bad when this promise came, the older will serve the younger. And he says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. This is a clear example of what Paul has been arguing. Salvation was never guaranteed to any individual in Israel because of their descendancy from Abraham or because they did anything good or bad. There was nothing in the person that made God decide one or that, that gave them salvation one way or the other. It was God's promise, God's promise to Isaac, God's promise to Jacob that determined who was part of his people and who was not. That's what Paul is arguing here. He's, and his whole point is, no, God's word hasn't failed because salvation was never given upon the basis upon what anyone does or who they are. It was only given because of God's distinctive promise to certain people. And he says, it is not the children of the flesh, not just all the children who are biologically descended from Abraham or who have a, a good heritage theoretically, but it is the children of the promise. It is those whom God calls and elects that he gives the promise to. That word election is used um, here in 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 chapter nine, he says here, uh, so though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, God's purpose of choosing, of God's deciding, might continue, not because of works, not on the basis of works. Jacob was not morally superior, and actually, you read the 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 Old Testament accounts. Jacob is a rascal. His name means cheater. He is not a good man. I mean, he cheats, he lies, and you look at it, he's a mama's boy. Esau would have been the kind of guy that, yes, he had his flaws, but you and I probably would have liked Esau. And Jacob was, a, was I mean, I hate, hate to put it this way, he was a, he, he was a cheater. That's what his name means. Um, he grabs the heel of others, and he lied and cheated and deceived. And yet, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. And that really humbled, I think later on, probably humbled Jacob, because later on in his life, we see him as a very humble figure. So right away, we see Paul is saying, no, 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 God's word hasn't failed. It hasn't failed. And that's so comforting for us as Christians, because we know that we can't be separated from his love either. So continuing on, however, here in uh, verses, what would this be? Verses 14, probably through uh, 24, right? Because Paul then has a second section. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
So let's read this devotional from this part now. What does this say? Helpful. Explain to us. It says, Paul continues to explain that God's grace has always been the determining factor for being included in his true family. However, even though some may feel that this is not fair, like in Romans 9.14, God is not obliged to give grace to any of us. He is free to distribute his mercy however he pleases, as the story of Pharaoh confirms. He does not have to meet our expectations or demands. We may object to God's control over our lives, as we see in verse 19, but he does not have to answer to us. He has the right to do as he wishes with those whom he has made in order to reveal his mercy to those whom he has chosen. It can be unsettling to be confronted with God's absolute power over our salvation, but ultimately, This is our true security. If there was nothing in us that brought us into grace, then there is nothing in us that can take us out of grace. God has not broken his promises, right? Again, the bigger question, has God's word failed? In order to see that, we must realize that God never promised salvation to anyone on the basis of their ethnicity or obedience, as Israel's own history demonstrates. Being Jewish has never guaranteed salvation. Therefore, if large numbers of Jews are rejecting Jesus, it does not suggest that God has been unfaithful to his word. His salvation is not based upon our heritage or merits, but has always been given to those whom he has graciously elected and called. And that's found in verse 11 and verse 24. God has not strayed from his own ways, purposes, and promises. Through the preaching of the gospel, he faithfully continues his work of electing and calling his people to himself. The unexpected twist in the story, however, is that his chosen people include not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. So we're continuing on, right? Because is God unjust? Because, and this is one of the big things. I, I remember um, talking with my wife one time and she was, uh, she had read Romans 9 and one of the things that she realized was that Paul can, Paul knows the objections we will have to what he's saying. And so he begins to address those. And it shows, I think, the, the, it does show the smarts of Paul, but it shows the divine inspiration of Scripture. That every single objection that we would have, right, well, has God's word failed? And Paul says, no, um, because God... God's salvation has always been by grace and his election and his choosing. Well, isn't that unfair then in verse 14, right? And that's exactly the objection that we would have. And that's exactly, that's exactly the objection Paul deals with in verse 14. And then again in 19, after he explains what he has to say in verses 14 through 18, he brings up another objection that, that comes up from all of us. Well, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? That's the, that's the objection in verse uh, 19. And then Paul has to uh, respond back to that objection that we would have to what he's saying. And I think one of the things that highlights to us, again, is a wonderful trustworthiness of Scripture. It's divinely inspired because it answers all of our objections right away. It knows, it knows us. Just uh, It knows us. So let's continue on here. Now Romans 9 verses uh, 25 through 33 now. Uh, This devotional continues, and I think this is a very helpful explanation through this passage. Paul has told us that God's chosen people consist of both Jews and Gentiles, who are non-Jews obviously, whom he has elected and called to himself. 
He now defends this teaching by quoting from the Old Testament books of Hosea and Isaiah to explain that God never intended to limit his promises to ethnic Israel. This is a stunning turn of events. The non-Jewish Gentiles have eagerly responded to the good news about Jesus, the gospel, gladly receiving the gift of righteousness that is by faith. We see that in verse 30. In contrast, the vast majority of ethnic Jews have missed the message that was programmed into their own law. The Mosaic Law, Israel's national contract with God that was first given to Moses at Mount Sinai, reveals sin and points people to their need for Jesus. But most Jews did not accept him as their promised king and savior. They had missed the point of the law, and rather than turning to trust in Jesus, they were offended by him and stumbled over his message of grace. Our good deeds can never produce the perfection that God demands. If we want a clean and perfect record, righteousness, we must receive it from God as a gift by faith. This message, or this means that sinners like us must come to God with the empty hands of faith, trusting only in Christ. That's exactly right. That's what it is. We have to come not based upon what we do, but simply because of what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul is saying, actually, the way that God works in the promise, in election, in calling, and in showing his sovereignty over salvation, that he's trying to show and remind us that you can be sure that you're safe in Christ because his word never failed. It didn't fail to Israel, and here's why. And here's God's control over the promise, and and, and so therefore we're secure. Nothing can separate us from God in Jesus Christ, and here's why. Romans 9 is really the great thing that upholds the truth of Romans 8. So Romans 8 is true, and Paul is kind of giving us uh, kind of a, a little bit of a deep dive real quick to show us because this is how God works in salvation and how he's always worked, we can trust that God's word will never fail for us, that God's salvation will never fail for us. His grace always works. It worked with the case of Isaac. It works in the case of Jacob. It works towards those whom he has mercy upon. And now he's had mercy upon the Gentiles. So you Gentiles can be absolutely sure his word has never failed and nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So now beginning in Romans 10 now, the great thing is he opens up now and says, brothers, my desire, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So he still desires their salvation. And and, and notice that, by the way, I think that's very important to be reminded of. While Paul fully trusts in the purpose and the sovereignty and the election and the calling of God as seen in the promise of grace in Romans 9, as he sees what God is doing and leaves to God to, to save and says God has never failed in his purposes, at the same time, Paul has that strong conviction about God's absolute sovereignty. And on the other hand, he also has a strong love for the lost. Sometimes we might think that those things can go not together, but when Paul, at the beginning of Romans 9 and now at the beginning of Romans 10, his heart while being fully trusting and fully convinced and confident in God's absolute sovereignty and salvation and grace, 
pairs that with a wonderful love and concern for the lost. And here particularly, he's talking about the Jews that are that he sees and he so wishes they would be saved and trust in the gospel of Christ. So now here, let's look at here a little bit of reflection as we think about the first part of Romans chapter 13, now stepping into that. And as you go here, Paul now says here, Paul expresses his desire for his fellow Jews to be saved from God's judgment. He affirms their moral and religious enthusiasm, but their zeal is misguided. Now that's very important, by the way. He says, I do say they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's not according to knowledge. They may be zealous, but they don't follow the truth as it is in Christ. The the devotion continues, the Jews mistakenly believe that they can earn God's favor with their own obedience rather than accepting God's righteousness, the gift of a clean and perfect record that is given to those who believe in Christ. These verses are sobering. Evidently, it is possible to be enthusiastic about God and morality and yet be unsaved. The question we must ask is not whether or not we are zealous, but whether or not we have faith in Christ. We must beware of trying to do what only Christ could do with his obedience. If we want God's favor, we cannot earn it. All we can do is acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord and trust in him as the Savior who was resurrected from the dead, right? Verses 9 through 10. This is the only hope for humanity, regardless of our ethnicity or religious status. Right? Because he says, we go out there, we proclaim the word of the gospel to all those who believe. We go out there and we preach it, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who receives the gift of Christ that God offers and gives to the whole world, to all those who will receive him, they are made right. This is the way salvation works. And Paul even says, this is what Moses wrote about. This is what the Old Testament was all about. Another highlight to us of the continuity and the fact that the message of the Old Testament is the same as the message of the New Testament. So Paul is going to go there. He he talks about how, you know, how we have to send people to preach this gospel, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And the fact is, Paul says in verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? And he says they have. And Israel did not believe. And, And the fault here does not lie with God. Right. He says, because we might be tempted to say, well, it's God's fault that Israel didn't believe. But Paul says here in verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So while on the one hand, Paul strongly emphasizes God's sovereignty and salvation, the election, calling, the promise, all of those words, grace and mercy. On the other hand, he is not afraid to highlight the fact that mankind have a responsibility to believe and to receive the gift. It is actually further sin upon everyone who hears the gospel if they do not believe. They are held to greater condemnation. Jesus himself said that, didn't he, in his, Matthew, in his gospel in Matthew and the other gospels, that, if, that he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the things done in you had been done in, you know, in, in uh, Nineveh or wherever, Sodom, they would, have re- they would have repented, but you didn't. And similarly here, the gospel came to Israel, and they will be held accountable, as all of us will be held accountable, if we have heard the gospel offer from Christ. If we have heard the message preached, we've read it, we will be held accountable for the fact that we rejected it. 
and the fact that we pushed against it and that we that we suppressed that truth. And so the gospel does need to be proclaimed, and that's why we preach. That's why we send preachers out. That's why we send missionaries. We send that gospel message to the ends of the earth so that the offer of God's grace in Jesus Christ can be offered and proclaimed to all men and women and boys and girls of every ethnicity and heritage and background and socioeconomic status everywhere because we want to show the world, we proclaim the world to the world, the testimony that God has given to us. Now, ultimately, we trust him to do the saving and we trust the fact that his word will not fail. That also is happening too, right? The word will not fail. His word will go do what he sets it forth to do. So, we continue on here and we we wrap we go here and so let's go now to Romans 11 now he says this i asked then he's coming back to the same question i asked then has god rejected his people by no means for i myself am an israelite a descendant of abraham a member of the tribe of benjamin god has not rejected his people whom he foreknew so let's read a little bit here. This is a, a devotion, the, continuing the section, really focusing on Romans 11, 1 through 10, but it's helpful again as we walk through this passage. Paul has already shown that God has been faithful to his promises to Israel. For one thing, God never promised salvation on the basis of Jewish ethnicity. Therefore, God's faithfulness is not in question just because ethnic Jews are rejecting Jesus. Additionally, he has pointed out that the Jewish people have had the opportunity to respond to Christ, but have chosen to reject him. That's in Romans 10, 14 through 21. God is not the one who has been unfaithful. Romans 11 now looks at the question, has God's word failed from a different angle? Since God has never promised salvation to all ethnic Jews, and since most Jews are rejecting the message of Jesus, perhaps God has altogether rejected the Israelites. Paul rules this out immediately. He refers us to the Old Testament story of a prophet named Elijah. In Elijah's day, many Israelites had rejected God, and the prophet despaired. But things were not as hopeless as Elijah thought. There were still a few Israelites who followed God. The same was true in Paul's own time. Just because most Jews were rejecting Jesus did not mean that all of them had. There is a remnant, like Paul himself, chosen by grace, verse 5. Once again, Paul reminds us that salvation is only because of the grace of God. And there are, are at least a few Jews who are receiving that grace, even if most are not. So remember, that's the wonderful story where Elijah says he thinks he's the only one who's really doing the Lord's work in the Old Testament, and he's struggling, right? It's a horrible time in Israel's history. And, and Elijah's very discouraged. And he says, Lord, you know, um, you know I, I alone am left. And Paul, God says, listen, Elijah, just so you're reminded, you're not the only one I have left. I have preserved a remnant. Yes, the nation is under Ahab and you know, Jezebel and the wickedness of the prophets of Baal. And yes, there's a lot of darkness, but you can be assured that I have chosen a remnant according. I have a remnant of people, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There are 7,000 left and they are mine. So God always always preserves his church, even if it's a remnant. And sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? In the, you know, certain times in church history, the church may seem to be blossoming. At other times, it seems like it's simply a remnant according to the election of grace. So now let's look here. Let's keep going. So he says that it, it's all based upon grace. 
and Israel, it was, it was, uh, that was God's purpose back then. And the same is true, is true today. And then Paul continues, he's going to talk about how uh, God has not rejected the Jews. um, And, and rather now beginning here in verse 65, he's going to highlight our verse 65, page 65 on this devotion. Uh, He's going to continue on this way. He says, God has not rejected the Jews, even though they have stumbled. Surprisingly, this stumbling has a bright side. Even though Israel has refused God's salvation in Christ, non-Jews have received it, and that makes Israelites jealous. Someday, Paul says, Israel will have full inclusion, which probably refers to a coming time when Jewish reception of the gospel will increase dramatically. God has not uprooted the Jews. The root remains holy, set apart for God's purposes. He has, however, broken off Jewish branches unbelieving Jews, and grafted Gentile olive shoots, believing non-Jews, into the olive tree of God's chosen people. In other words, God's chosen people now consist of both Jews and Gentiles. Paul warns the Gentiles not to be arrogant toward the Jews. After all, the church has a rich Old Testament heritage, which Paul celebrates in 9, 4 through 5. Right? Remember the covenants, the worship. The covenants and the worship um, belong to them. He says, Gentiles who get cocky will find that God deals with them just as he dealt with hard-hearted Jews. God is both kind and severe, depending on how we approach him. To approach him with arrogance is to risk his judgment. God can certainly pour out his blessing on those who might seem to have turned away, just as he can pull the rug out from under the prideful. So again, notice again the idea of grace. It does not promote arrogance. It promotes humility. It should promote humility for the Israelites, and it should promote humility to the non-Jews, the Gentiles like us. Because Paul says none of us have any room for being arrogant or boasting or anything like that. The very worst thing that could happen would be, well, what maybe sometimes has happened in the history of, uh, of the world. You know, anti-Semitism has always been around, probably in the Old Testament, and, and there's been various forms of it, again, and, and, and bad, it's horrible in, in, in after the coming of Christ as well. Um, but what the, the, the reality is, is the Jews have no, bo- no room for boasting and the Gentiles have no room for boasting and for Gentiles to begin thinking that they are racially or ethnically superior and the Jews are inferior would be the exact opposite of what the gospel should produce. The gospel should produce humility for Jew and Gentile. We both have a lot to be humble for. We both have a lot that we that we that we should that we could be ashamed of, but we have a lot to be thankful for because of the grace that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And so the Jews cannot boast against the Gentiles, the Gentiles cannot boast against the Jews. Both stand under God's uh, both stand in need of God's grace and have sinned and are disobedient, and both need the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. So there's a great leveling, a great equal field of play that we have um, and that we all stand on as Jews and Gentiles together now in Christ, in the one chosen people of God. We are all sons and daughters of Abraham in Christ Jesus. That is, that is, and that is the truest sense in which to be a son or daughter of Abraham, isn't it? To be a child of promise, to be a child of promise. Okay, so... That's what Paul's saying there. He's highlighting the fact that we have no room to be arrogant. And then lastly here, we've got a couple more things, and then I'll, then I'll, I'll end today. 
but I think this is very helpful. Uh, Romans, uh, now let's look at 11 verses 25 through 32. And he says, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And he continues to, to highlight here. And, and this, uh, this devotion here says this now. Paul now explains the big picture. The gospel's rejection by most Jews and acceptance by many Gentiles is part of a bigger storyline that God will unfold throughout history. Jewish hardening is only partial. It will one day cease. Someday all Israel will be saved. This may refer to the day when God has finally brought about the salvation of all Israel in the spiritual sense, or it may refer to the eventual conversion of a large number of Jews to Christianity. In the end, God will display his judgment and mercy to both Gentiles and Jews. The bottom line is that God desires to have mercy on all, both Jews and Gentiles. Mercy is his heart. It is who he is. So that's where this is driving us to, right? God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then the last devotion I want to read is here from Romans 11 again. Um, It says, Paul then goes in and says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This is what they, we close here with this devotion here. Paul's argument in Romans 9 through 11 end with an eruption of praise to God for his wisdom and the way he has designed salvation. Paul has just shown us that God's word has not failed. He has not broken a single promised Israel. Despite the fact that most Jews are rejecting God's salvation, God faithfully continues his commitment to freely choose and save people regardless of their ethnicity or good works. Among those receiving this amazing grace are a small remnant of ethnic Jews, and in the end, all Israel will be saved. God's word is trustworthy. He has not abandoned his people. Not that any of us, including Paul, can understand and explain everything, but when we have reached the limits of our knowledge, we can stand amazed with joy and hope and wonder at God and his gospel. God is working things out, regardless of how it may appear at times, and he will be forever praised in the end. His people can rejoice and rest secure in his gospel promises. The end result of Romans 9-11 is not academic discussion or theological argument, but worship. And that's where we want to end this chapter. I think we're not going to do things from 12 and 13, although those are great applications, but I think the worship, the, the thing that this is all driving us to is to give us the grounds of assurance. So nothing can separate us from the love of God. Has, didn't God's word fail to Israel? Paul's answer is absolutely no. Here is the security and the stability of the salvation that we have in God. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That is out of that worship now, out of that confidence that we now have in God and the great gratitude that we have. Therefore, in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing 
you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So all of these things are driving us to worship and a life of holiness and gratitude for the great grace and the sufficiency and the stability that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. We're going to continue picking up next week. We'll pick up Romans chapter 14, wrap up Romans, and then we're going to go into 1 Corinthians. I hope you'll join us. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. God bless.